Views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. The thing about politics in Canada right now is that they're so right wing, you know? I mean, it's like the United States. All the politicians screaming for capital punishment is pathetic. You're right, you know? We, uh, we believe that Jim is going to bring politics here back to the moderate liberal center. Well, personally, I think all sex offenders should be hung. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what we were saying. Yeah, absolutely. Hang them. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, December 16th, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. To black and And welcome to our final show for the year 2010, where the number, as always, is 519-661-3600 to reach us on the open line, or as always, you can email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Today on the show, we're going to have a Just Right Year End, just closing off the year with some um, closing comments at the end of the show. We're going to have a few Christmas comments, because this is our last show before Christmas. But for the first half of the show... We are going to be talking about Canada and the trouble with Canada still. If you're looking for a good Christmas present uh, to give someone, consider getting someone a copy of The Trouble with Canada still by William Gardner, which is available at bookstores everywhere, including, of course, on Amazon.com. If you need any reasons to consider doing so, we have them for you today. And we thought we'd take the first half of our show today to discuss The Trouble with Canada still with its author, Bill Gardner, who joins us live on the line from his home today. Hello, Bill. Are you there? Yes, sir. How are you? How are you doing today? Hi, Bill. Uh, hi. Very well. Thanks for having me on the show. Bill, I remember a book called The Trouble with Canada. Yeah, 20 years ago. 20 years ago. So yeah, what did you do? Uh, Just rewrite it? <laughs> I'll share a brief story with you. 20 years ago, uh, well, about four months after it was published, it hit number one in uh, the Global Mail bestseller list in Canada. So we had dinner that night in a beautiful restaurant in Vancouver, and uh, uh, suddenly this fellow, it was very crowded, and uh, we were celebrating this fellow, nice-looking fellow smoking a cigar. He leans over and uh, taps me on the shoulder. He says, what are you celebrating? And I said, I said, we're ce- my book, it hit number one today. You know, this is a beautiful restaurant, you know, Ivy Vines, beautiful right. food, nice wines. And, and he says, what's the title of the book? And I said, it's called The Trouble with Canada. He looks around, he says, I don't see any trouble. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was Billy Joel, the singer, who was in the restaurant that night. Oh, no kidding. I've heard of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... What you know, I, I recall reading your book twenty years ago. I still have a copy. Unfortunately, I lent it to somebody, and, and I haven't seen it back yet. So I'm going to have to put a call out for that, or maybe just get the new one. What what has changed, or what hasn't changed since well, the first? Well, uh, I'm happy to tell you uh, my views on that. I mean, it was twenty years ago, and here we are, twenty years down the road. And I think the background for uh, the story to be told in this book, which is, I think a better book in the sense that it's deeper, wider, broader. I mean, I'm older now, and more water's gone under the bridge. More reflection is was possible, so here we are. But the, I think the main line of the story is that I think the Western, many of the Western democracies, perhaps most of them, are out of control. 
And when I say that, people say, what are you talking about out of control? I mean, uh, you know, Canada's doing pretty well compared to all the others. And I say, well, that's correct, but only compared to some of the others. Um, Canada is also out of control from my point of view because although we talk democracy and we have more democracy almost everywhere in the Western world than we've ever had, we have less freedom. Uh, and I think probably less freedom than we have ever had in modern times. In other now, words, more government, more regulation, more of what I call statism. Now, Bill, for people who don't really, um, who haven't heard of you before since at least the uh, last book 20 years ago, I'd just like to give uh, them a rundown of some of your credentials. Now, you are a, a PhD in English literature from Stanford, 1970. Yeah. And uh, don't you still have um, professorships or assistant professorships at York University in Stanford? No, I don't do any teaching anymore. I did for some time, but that was quite a while ago. So you retired? My teaching, you might say, is in the form of books. And people should uh, perhaps also know that in 1964, you represented Canada at the Tokyo Olympic Games. What was your uh, particular yep. forte there? Well, I ran in two events uh, in track and field. One of them was the decathlon, which is a 10-event event, uh, really. Uh, you know, field events, oh, running yes. events, throwing events, all kind of piled together. And I uh, came 11th out of 32 countries in that event. And I also ran the 400-meter hurdles there, and I didn't make the final to say the least, but... Are you still but jumping hurdles today? <laughs> Pardon me? Are you still jumping hurdles today? Uh, Political no. hurdles, perhaps? No, I'm a fanatical uh, <laughs> cyclist in the summertime and just as fanatical cross-country skier in the winter. Now, you're so the past chairman... Active, as, still loving it. You're past chairman as well of the Gairdner Foundation. You want to tell us a little about that? Yeah, the Gairdner Foundation was started by my grandfather in 1958. Uh, to make a long story short, when he got sick, he would go to his doctor friends and say, cure me. And they would say, we can't, you know, and then he would get maybe a diabetes. He'd say, cure me. They'd say, we, we can't. And so he said, you folks need some help. And he set up a foundation and endowed it uh, with some money, uh, basically to give uh, international awards to scientists from anywhere in the world, actually the very best scientists in the world. In that 50-year period, the Gardner Foundation has given over 300 of these awards to international uh, medical scientists. Uh, about 25% of whom have afterwards won the Nobel Prize in Medicine. So it's uh, it's considered kind of a precursor to the Nobel these days. Now get back to your book. Healthcare plays a prominent role, I understand, from your uh, shock sheet, as you call it, yeah. uh, about your book. Um, uh, now how does healthcare play, um, how has it changed over the last 20 years since you've written your book? Well, I would say um, it's changed in the sense that it's become a leaky vessel. Uh, there are provinces in Canada, like Quebec and B.C., which are very le leaky from the point of view of um, avoiding the regulations of the health care regulations in Canada, you know, avoiding them and setting up private clinics uh, where they uh, supposedly are not supposed to and that sort of thing. Uh, Ontario is much tougher from that point of view, and it's harder to do that here. But it's a curiosity from an historical point of view because in America we see all this talk about wanting a public option, uh, whereas Canada uh, has been has had a public option for almost 45 years, and I think we're now heading towards a private option, and here's the reason. When public health care got started in Canada, the public portion of health spending uh, was about 20% of provincial budgets. Now it's closing in on 50% in many of our provinces. I mean, clearly, we can't keep doing this. Clearly, uh, it's impossible to have a single government program, which is eating up almost half of the provincial budget. 
So something's got to give, and I think it is giving. And one of my great regrets about Canadians is that I think we've been infantilized from an intellectual point of view and a moral point of view. Instead of, you know, we're like people sitting in a car facing backwards, uh, and we say, oh, gee, there goes Medicare. It was a great idea when it got started, but it's gobbling up our, our money. <laughs> what are we going to do? Or, or they say, you know, oh, gee, there goes multiculturalism. It was a great idea when it started, but, you know, somehow uh, it's falling apart and creating all the wrong... Uh, results. Uh, so, you know, it's like I say, we're like in a car facing backwards. And my view is we should be turning around and grabbing the steering wheel now I'm gonna and ch- uh, going forward uh, with a little more clarity. So, so that's why I wrote the book. People say, are you a pessimist? Why do you call it the trouble with Canada? I said, no, I'm an optimist. Um, this is a, this, no, this is a, a compassionate book, which you cannot write unless you love your country. I call it the trouble with Canada because until you know the troubles, you know, you're going to be throwing water on the smoke instead of on the fire. I was curious. So with, the, with, with respect to the health care then, Bill, are you suggesting that our leaky system should be tightened up or that, you, that we should loosen it up in terms oh, of more? I think uh, it was a mistake to uh, criminalize uh, private health care for what we call insured services today. Uh, I mean, if you want to make the argument that the government should provide health care for the truly needy so that they, you know, so that money's not the big uh, uh, item that determines the quality of care that citizens get. Uh, I'm okay with that. Let government look after the truly needy if we want to set it up that way. But I think the idea of criminalizing uh, private health care was a terrible mistake. And uh, that's why we're in the situation that we're in. Let me just give you an example of a reason why. Uh, a health economist some years ago in the States calculated that if every American citizen demanded every available blood test on the same day, it would come to more than the entire gross domestic product of the country. So, in other words, obviously health care is limited. Obviously it has to be rationed. And in a a free society, it's usually rationed by price, uh, availability, that kind of thing. But in an unfree society, and I make the claim that Canada, at least with respect to its health care program, is an unfree society, a closed society, uh, it gets rationed by waiting. I'll give you a personal example. When I was writing this chapter mm-hmm. uh, a year ago, uh, I went to my own GP and I said, I feel guilty. He said, why? I said, well, I just wrote this uh, devastating chapter on our health care system. I think we've got terrible problems, but you're a great GP, and this is a great office. He said, well, you're not criticizing me. You're criticizing the system. And I said, yes, I am. At the time, I was seeing him about a terribly painful arthritic shoulder, which I thought might have to be replaced. So we got talking about that, and I said, doctor, I said, can you get me an appointment with one or one of these two uh, surgeons that you've been telling me are close to Toronto? Because not that many people do shoulders. He held up two fingers. And I said, what are, you, what, are you, what are you saying? He said, two years. Two years just for a consultation. <laughs> so you see, I faced it myself. This was rationing of health care with a vengeance. Uh, so some people say, well, what does it matter? You have a terribly painful shoulder. You can hardly wash your hands. It's so painful. Uh, or pick up a glass of water. But, you know... That's okay if you suffer for a couple of years. Who cares, right? But I say it's inhumane. I even make the argument, which is a bit shocking for most people to hear, that Canadian health patients are like pets. They have political masters. Actually, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with veterinary care. I think. Actually, Bill, I, no, I would have to disagree with you. I think our pets have better health care than we do because you, you have a pet. You it's can faster. actually get uh, faster treatment for them, any treatment yeah. for them, as long as you're willing to pay. You can even get an MRI. You can get an yeah, MRI. Yeah, true. I mean, no this I, had a, I had a horse with a very lame foot this summer. I called the vet. He came the same afternoon, brought his own X-ray machine, boom, boom, boom. 
and I'm looking at this, this beautiful x-ray, and I'm saying to myself, okay, it cost me 170 bucks. You know, why can't, why don't most doctors have these machines right in their offices? You know, instead of, like me, I had to drive like 10 miles to get an x-ray. And, you know, a week later, I get results, that kind of thing. Now, I, mean, I, I remember reading your book 20 years ago, Bill. As a matter of fact, I have a, an autographed copy of it from you when you visited London 20 years ago. <laughs> and uh, I remember reading that you called yourself a true conservative. Is that correct? Yeah, I did, but it got a bit uh, confusing to people because they don't know the difference between conservative politics and conservative philosophy. I think you may have also called yourself or, dist or distinguished yourself from a classical liberal. Is yeah, that, and yeah. today I have to use a word like free thinker, like I, mm -hmm. because I feel that, you know, that's what I am, and I think that's what we need more of in this country. So, People who are unafraid and prepared to think freely and openly about the kinds of thing I talk about in this book. So would you be partisan today? Uh, what are your thoughts I would join on... political parties. I'm not, I mean, I would, I would vote for Stephen Harper if he ran election tomorrow because I think he's doing an okay job, but I'm obviously critical of many of the things he's doing, like mm -hmm. the spending now, uh, that we're seeing. But uh, I like some of the things he's doing, too, and compared to the alternatives, that's what I would do. In past shows, we've uh, analyzed conservatism in Canada, and, of course, we're not conservatives. We're not liberals either, or socialists. We sympathize very much so with what you're um, putting in your book, but conservatisms as a whole have uh, are basically very socialist in this country. They, they fall over themselves trying to not get rid of social programs, but to try to run them more so, uh, so efficiently, as they say. For example, yeah. you know, it started off with Bennett back in the 40s when he uh, nationalized the Bank of Canada, introduced the CBC. We have uh, Mr. Harper today uh, maintaining uh, Section 13 of the Human Rights Commission, and uh, multiculturalism was introduced by Brian Mulroney. So Conservatives yeah. as a whole are not necessarily the group we no. want to look They're to. They're not necessarily conservative political philosophers right. or anything like that. That's right. They tend to be centrist or very very modern liberal. Modern liberal, as you know, is very different from classical liberal. So is there any hope then, considering that uh, neither party in power basically have a track record of getting rid of these programs or cutting our debt or reducing our taxes? What's hope? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, Bob, because it's part of the background of this whole book, uh, and I talk about it right in the first chapter. There's a shocking graph which shows uh, what, ha what has happened to Canada. Like, you know, for 100 years, it was almost a flat line except for wartime mm -hmm. and the Depression, you know. And then suddenly in the mid-60s, the Pearson-Trudeau axis comes along, and boom, you just see the line shooting up. And so when this book came out 20 years ago, we were, you know, we were approaching $500 billion in federal debt alone. Now we're zooming over $600 billion in federal debt alone. But if you add the debts of the provinces, uh, municipalities, crown corporations, and all the unfunded liabilities of governments in this country, you come to about $2.4 trillion. Most Canadians are unfamiliar with these numbers. That's $150,200 for every man, woman, and child in Canada today, you write. That yeah, that's right? right. I mean, it's a lot of money. And, and, and to me, uh, we don't spend enough time talking about the moral rupture which has occurred in this country because of debt. I mean, all deficit spending to me is just a form of deferred taxation. So the question is, you know, why, why are we just floating along accepting the idea that future generations who are not even born yet and therefore cannot defend themselves against our current consumption, basically against our appetites, why do we think that's a good idea or acceptable? I mean, even my father's generation, let alone his father's generation, would have abhorred the idea. They all felt that 
okay, if governments have to borrow for some kind of short-term project, that's fine, but each generation should be paying its own way, not downloading uh, the cost of current consumption on future generations. So I, I just think it's uh, terribly embarrassing, and Canada should face it. And I would even say from a broader perspective that all the Western democracies, almost all of them, are now in this situation, which is why I say they're out of control. We, are, we have become what I call a tripartite society. Uh, that's a society in which one-third of the people are actually creating the wealth, generating the wealth. Mm-hmm. One-third of the people work for government at some, you know, one of the three levels. And one-third of the people take a significant portion of their annual income from government. And anyone can see that these last two segments will always gang up on the first segment. And when that happens, I think you're in trouble because you can't get out of it. Absolutely. Once again, we're speaking to William D. Gardner, if you've just joined in on the show, who is the author of The Trouble with Canada. And you'll want to own your own copy. Trust me, go out to the, go out to the shops. Any bookstore will have this book available. Gonna Trouble take with qu- Canada still. Still, sorry, yes. yeah, still. still. <laughs> yeah. Don't get it confused with the first one there. I don't, don't, don't know if that'll still be yeah. in the store. <laughs> Gentlemen, I wanted to mention, too, for your uh, London listeners, that I'm going to be in London on January 27th in the evening. We're doing a speaking event out there. Excellent. And obviously yeah. we'll be peddling books alongside. Well, uh, if any of your listeners want to come out uh, to that, I'm not sure of the location yet, but we'll be letting you know as we go forward. Well, we'll be sure to let them know uh, when that time arrives. Right now we've got to take a quick break, and when we come back we'll continue the conversation with William Gardner. I don't like lending my books to people, you know, partly because, you know, they're part of your identity, your books. Oh. And also I don't want people to know what I already know, you know. <laughs> I've invested a lot of time and effort in acquiring that knowledge. I don't want to throw away my slender advantage, you know? Of course I lend them books, yes. I say, here's Angela's ashes, take that, there you go. lending books to people is that people have this disgusting habit of licking their thumbs before turning a page. I've got a vegetarian friend who does this and he borrows my books all the time. And what I do is I smear the corners of the pages with bits of greasy bacon. And I stick a sausage in the middle as a bookmark. There's some clever ways of keeping people from borrowing <laughs> your books, eh, Bill? That was very funny. <laughs> well, uh, hope, hope people aren't going to be doing that with your book. I um, do. <laughs> by the way, the good news is this yeah. is flagrant self-promotion, but I just got a report from BookNet. The book sold uh-huh. almost 400 copies last in last week alone. Excellent. It was a 70% increase over the week before. So I'm happy to say it seems to be you know, working its way uh, forward and, and, and selling, which is nice. A big worry of any author, of course, is you do all this all this work and uh, the people go silent. I, but thought... I, think, I think it's a new generation now. There are people the age of some of my children. My youngest mm-hmm. child is about 27, uh, etc. But, uh, uh, you know, this generation, I think, they're beginning, to, when they look at their paychecks, they're saying, whoa, you know, 
Oh, lot of taxes coming off here. They're the ones that are being saddled with the debts of the previous generations, yeah. it appears. Yeah. You know, I found it interesting, Bill, that a number of the subjects in your book were basically subjects we talk about on this show all the time. One of them that grabbed my attention right away was was the the scandal we discussed last week on the show, the whole Aboriginal situation. Yeah. And uh, we had some incredible guests on the show last week from the Caledonia situation. Uh-huh. And, in fact, we referred to your book in that show, talking about how you yourself point out in your book how the social reality of Aboriginal life is horrific, as you write. Yeah. And that, um, well, why don't, you, Kate, why don't you tell us what you found and see how that jives with what we heard last week. Yeah, well, uh, I didn't spend a lot of, a lot of time on, um, on the uh, Aboriginal situation, but enough, enough to say that I think, I think in Canada we, and, uh, and these are tough words, but on page 232 I refer to Canada's <clears throat> secret apartheid system. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, this is not South African apartheid, but it is a race-based, blood-based system. And I think you could argue that it is a test case of radical socialism at work uh, within our own borders. And we are able to see the, the consequences of it, which are, are pretty terrible. I mean, from a life expectancy point of view, from an alcoholism point of view, obesity, smoking, uh, death by suicide, all the Abor- Aboriginal numbers are, are are just terrible. I mean, absolutely shocking. The numbers and, um, on, the, on the crime perpetrated as well was very interesting. Do you want to let us know about that one as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I found out just from government uh, data. I mean, they don't advertise this, right? But you can find it on uh, Correctional Services Canada's websites that although Aboriginals constitute only 3.8% of the Canadian population, they commit 28% of all homicides in Canada and 39% of all cases of assault. And if you break that down uh, by yeah. men or we, uh, or women, you find that uh, 1.9% because... Yeah, because uh, it's most... mostly men. I mean, right. 99% men doing this. Uh, so it's really 1.9% of the population is committing 28% of all the homicides. If you go to some of the jails in the western provinces, I mean, obviously not all of them, but some of the jails in certain parts of these provinces are 80 to 90% Aboriginal prisoners. Um, and the statistics for what they call police-reported crime in Canada are very, very high. And one of the main reasons is that in areas like, uh, you know, Nunavut, uh, Yukon, and so on, you're talking 30 to 45 percent of the population um, coming to the attention of the police in the sense of a, uh, committing a what they call a police-reported crime mm-hmm. at some time during the year. That's just horrendous. So... I don't know what Canada is going to do about this because already we're coughing up seven or eight billion dollars a year. Although experts I have spoken to say that's a low number, and that nobody really knows uh, how much money Canada is forking over for Aboriginal causes I can in tell total, you. because there are so many ancillary organizations and provincial government organizations, et cetera, et cetera, which are into this. You're absolutely right, you know, because, uh, of course, I'm involved with the political party myself, and we used to get all the, the government uh, budgetary statements, and it was amazing. Uh, they'd show us, you know, $50,000 grant for a grocery store on a, on a reserve, you know, uh, 25000 for uh, for a machine shop or something like that, All the, just money going out in, in all various departments. It had nothing to do with the Aboriginal department uh, as such. Well, I, I, feel, I feel terrible for the Aboriginals who are... I should say, trapped in this situation. Um, but, but, but isn't it proof, isn't this glaring proof that the more money a society throws at a group, 
collectively through taxation, the worse off those groups are. I mean, it happens everywhere. It's, it's, a, it's a universal yeah. fact, is it not? I agree. Yeah, it's I, an historical fact, a universal fact, and it's interesting. You know, I keep animals at my farm. I have a few horses, some llamas, a donkey, that kind of thing. And uh, certain parts of the year, like wintertime, they're in a kind of pen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, and they get well taken care of there, just like you could argue like Canadians do, you know? I mean... Uh, the whole emphasis in modern Canadian society is no longer liberty, it's security. You know, we do it all for you, nanny state, all the rest of it. Okay. I mean, so we live in, in what some philosophers have called a golden sty. I mean, a sty is kind of like a, a pen, an animal pen, you know. And what I often do is I, I go out there and I feed the animals and give them their water and this and that. And sometimes I just open the gate to see what they'll do. You know, it's amazing. They'll walk out of this pen... And they and they look around. They look around, kind of, kind of frightened. Uh, walk around, walk around a bit, and then go right back in to the pen. <laughs> you know, they love it in there. <laughs> yeah, sounds. Guess that could. They be don't a, want freedom. That's, and uh, you might say that you can condition an entire people to prefer the golden sty rather than liberty. I think and, it's because they don't know. One of the arguments what... I make in this book is that Canada has gone through a regime change in the last 50 years, uh, through which we have been uprooted from our original foundation, which was basically British liberty. In the first chapter, you can see a couple of quotations from our wonderful founding fathers who were basically praising this to the skies. Even French Canadians at the time were praising the British, uh, British liberty and the British system of government, which was our inheritance. Uh, but we've been yanked off that foundation. It already started in the 60s. And, of course, it was capped by the advent of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1982, which brought to Canada, at least I argue this, it brought to Canada a form of code law, which uh, is foreign to our history and to our origins and uh, has been basically slapped on top of us. Um, I won't say against our will because we didn't fight it, (laughs) but it was against our will in the sense that we didn't really vote for it. It was voted... Uh, on our behalf by the British Parliament, not by the Canadian Parliament. And I remember Enoch Powell, I think it was Enoch Powell, who stood up in 1982 and he warned the British House. He said, gentlemen, I think I'm, I fear that we are participating in a deception of the Canadian people. I think and he was right. This is, these are strong words, but I think that's exactly what it was and how the thing was brought about. Uh, just to turn the page a bit there, uh, Bill, uh, let's talk about feminism. You're, you're quoting in your book that almost uh, over since 1973... Over almost 1.5 billion taxpayer dollars for feminist programs, almost all for radical causes the majority of Canadian women have never even supported. How do you get That's into true. that? That's true. And, uh, you know, I, these numbers have never been produced before. I mean, you get reports every year about how much is going to this and how much is going to that. But I asked, uh, I asked real women up in Ottawa to do the homework uh, through the Freedom of or Information Act or whatever it's called. And they dug up the figures from 1973 forward. We don't have all the figures entirely. It could be more than what I'm saying, but I, from what we have to date, it looks like about $1.5 billion. And as I say, uh, these, uh, this, these monies have most, mostly been spent on NDP-type causes, socialist causes, radical feminist causes, which the Canadian women as a whole have never supported. Now, is this so a, a federal you government really figure? Yourself, what's going on in the country when that kind of money is dragged out of uh, the hands of citizens who can many of whom can ill afford to part with it and to spend on these kinds of radical causes uh, you know uh, it, it really is bizarre it's like government it's like lateral government 
Mm-hmm. If not top-down in all cases, it's lateral in cases like this because government is being pushed around by by radical organizations, which now, government is, is self-funding. You mentioned the NDP, that these are basically their kinds of causes, and yet they're not even in government. They've never been in federal government. They've only been in a few provincial yeah. governments, and yet again we have conservatives and liberals trying to implement NDP policies and spending billions, quite literally, on yes. them. Where do they get the gall to do such a thing? Well, you know, it is frustrating. It is frustrating, gentlemen. I, uh, you know, and is that just our democracy out of control? Yeah, it's out of control. People often say to me, "Why don't what you know? We like what you're saying. Why don't you run for government?" And and sometimes I feel a bit guilty that I've never tried to do that. But in my heart, what I really should say about that is that I do believe that if you know anyone like me, for example, with my views, ran for government. Suppose you got the keys. And you could turn the whole thing around and get it all sorted out the way you thought it should be, as according to many of the um, directions outlined in this book. I'm not convinced at all that the day you stepped out of office, say 10 years later, it wouldn't all just go snapping back to where it is now. In other words, as some pundit said years ago, it's the culture stupid, you know, and it's the stupid culture. So I don't mean to be arrogant when I say that, but I do mean to say that until an entire population wakes up, realizes that it has been infantilized by the process of uh, modern statism, uh, I don't think anything can change. Now, Bill, uh, we so that's why I write, I write books. I think you can reach more people with books than you can by standing up on a political podium. No, I think you're doing well with it, too. And uh, we've only just got another minute or so left, and perhaps we can end off with uh, another strange topic that... Uh, you cover so much in your book on all these different taboo topics like bilingualism, Quebec separatism, the debt. But one that is perhaps near and dear to a lot of people's heart is the terrorist organizations that are in Canada. Oh, yes, and, and you're dear. saying that, yeah, near and dear. Uh, should I say that it is in the back of everybody's mind. We try to forget about it, but it's there like a nagging sore. There are more international terrorist groups active in Canada than in any other country in the world, except perhaps the USA, you say. Yeah, well, Let's that was a that. statement, I put it in quotes for that reason, by Wade Alcock, who, who said that in 1999 or 2000. He was at that time head of the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service. I mean, he should know, right? Well, <laughs> so, <I> think. <laughs> uh, you would think he should know. If he doesn't know, then we don't have an intelligence service. So where are we, where are all. we going so, with all this? Well, my big concern about this is, and I do think multicultural policy has fed into this, there are many reasons why Canada went public with multicultural policy, but I'm a critic of it now. At the time, it sounded good to most people, although I was a little suspicious even then. Now I'm very suspicious of it, and I I make the claim that multiculturalism has condemned hundreds of of ethnicities in Canada to house arrest in their own skins. Um, Now, let me just clarify. People say, well, Canada's been always multicultural. I say, no, it hasn't. It's always been multi-ethnic. But it has never before been multicultural. And I get concerned when an entire civilization, which is what, what, what we have been, uh, simply uh, throws its culture out with the bathwater in the name of something like multiculturalism. Would you consider Canada's policy of bilingualism being part of that multiculturalism mosaic? Yeah, I mean, we know, we, we know what happened there. We know that we know the myth about the two founding nations, which was a myth. Canada was never meant to be two founding nations. It was always meant to be a new nation, a single new nation, not two nations. No, I think the Lord Durham report, actually, where that quote comes from, the two founding nations, actually applied to Lower Canada. Yeah. It didn't even apply to the country of Canada. It applied to Quebec, Lower Canada, <laughs> the two founding nations of Lower Canada. 
Another yeah, and I, and I think originally Durham wanted basically to assimilate all French-speaking people and get rid of the problem, which is not how we went, mm-hmm. you know. And we know the story from there. After the two founding nations myth, which was a myth of what one of our famous constitutional scholars called our pseudo-history, uh, we then went to this multicultural policy. And uh, you have to say that from a political point of view, multicultural policy was an attempt to dilute the uh, separatist um, uh, forces in Quebec by uh, simply removing the emphasis on uh, the French and making Canada as a whole a multicultural nation. Uh, and I think it's a real problem. You can see it in the stats in this chapter where the government it itself tells us that 20 years ago we had half a dozen so-called ethnic communities or ghettos, if you like. They don't use that word, but I do. Today we have over 250 of them. Uh, and it's clear from the scholarship all over the Western world, in Europe and America and now in Canada, that a multicultural program uh, is inconsistent with mass immigration. Um, you know, uh, you get mass immigration going and you get terrorism, and uh, it creeps in. And uh, Canada's been very lucky so far. I think we are the only country that was mentioned by, by, um, by Osama bin Laden, which has not yet had a uh, terrorist incident, at least not since he came on the scene. We're the only one of the seven countries that he mentioned on which he wanted revenge which is still virginal, so to speak. Well, let's cross our fingers and hope that uh, nothing terrible happens here. Well, let's do hope so. And, and Bill, you've certainly given us some food for thought. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today, and we hope we'll see you again in the new year. Yeah, thank you for having me. Okay, well, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. And it's called The Trouble with Canada, and it's got a lot Trouble of with shock. Canada still. still huh? Yes, I was going to get to that. Still shocking, I was going to get to author William D. Gardner. When we return on the other side of the break, we're going to be getting a little bit into the Christmas season and our close-off for the year 2010. Can't believe it, Robert. The year's mm-hmm. over already. And we'll be going now. See ya. But uh, at some point in a long life, the average American will see a map of North America and notice Canada. We're not big on geography for the most part, but uh, it's so damn huge. In fact, for something that occupies such a tiny portion of American consciousness, Canada is unreasonably large. So naturally, the first thought that occurs to an American, seeing how large it is, is, why don't we own that land? And immediately, whatever our walk of life, we begin planning an invasion. Second nature to us, we can't help it. And I think Canadians sense that. You know, we have designs. But you're very clever. Very clever. That's why you put all of your signs in French. You know how intimidating that is to us Americans. We fear the French. We do. Because they make us feel like the yokels we are. Even if you don't understand a word they're saying, you know they're insulting you. It's the French, in my opinion, that are keeping Canada Canadian. Because if they ever separated, we would annex the rest of Canada in a second. But they're the poison pill. Nobody wants them in their country. Very clever, you Canadians. Very clever.
But Christmas has gotten out of control. But when I was a kid, I wanted to celebrate it. But I couldn't because I'm Jewish. <laughs> but when you compare Christmas to Hanukkah, there's no comparison. Christmas is great. Hanukkah sucks. <laughs> How do we celebrate Hanukkah? We celebrate it with candles. Little tiny pissant candles. <laughs> you Christians, on Christmas, Santa comes and he brings a ton of stuff. It's unbelievable. It's extraordinary. I go next door to see my best Christian pals. I'll never forget it. And the whole house is filled with boxes. It's like a warehouse. And out back, there's six ponies. Six! <laughs> We were going to buy Princess One, but we loved all of them. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> People believe that Hanukkah is uh, uh, celebrated for eight days. And that's a liar, liar, pants on fire situation. <laughs> Most Jewish families don't make it past the fourth day. It doesn't happen. Come on, are we going to light the lights? Uh, no, enough's enough. First night you get socks, second night an eraser, a notebook. It's a back-to-school holiday! Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can call us at 519-661-3600 to join in on the conversation, which, during this last half hour, is going to be a bit of housekeeping, as we called it, for, for it being year-end, and a Christmas story, which I'm going to recite to you very shortly. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, now, this is not your usual Christmas story. This is entitled, Christmas Should Be More Commercial. Oh, boy. Yeah. It's uh, by Leonard Peikoff. Christmas reality. <laughs> <laughs> it's by Leonard Peikoff and um, the intellectual heir of Ayn Rand. And this was published November 30th, 2010, in Capitalism Magazine, although it uh, was originally uh, published back in 1998. I think they publish it every year because it is just so good and it captures, for me, the true meaning of Christmas, the true spirit of Christmas. So I'm going to read a, oh, uh, an edited version of it. Okay. So sit back, relax. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Don't get to do that often. Christmas gift. <laughs> Again, by Leonard Peikoff. Oh. Christmas in America is an exuberant display of human ingenuity, capitalist productivity, and the enjoyment of life. Yet all of these are castigated as materialistic. The real meaning of the holiday, we are told, is assorted nativity tales and altruistic injunctions, for example, love thy neighbor, that no one takes seriously. Or at least if they do, this is a, an interjection by me, Bob, <laughs> if they do, they forget it the very next day. <laughs> In fact, Christmas as we celebrate it today is a 19th century American invention. The freedom and prosperity of post-Civil War America created the happiest nation in history. Now, as a Canadian, I, I might take umbrage at that, but I'll leave it go. The result was the desire to celebrate, to revel in the goods and pleasure of life on Earth. The holiday was inherently a pro-life festival of earthly renewal. Now, he's talking, of course, back then in the day of... Uh, I'm not going to get into this part of the article where he talks about Saturnalia and the various oh, pagan yeah. festivals that the Christians usurped to um, impose... The very their, early history. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah, you're going back many thousands of years, and they're still practiced today in some corners of the world. The holiday, now after Christians stole Christmas, as he quite 
interestingly puts it, the holiday was inherently a pro-life festival of earthly renewal, but the Christians preached renunciation, sacrifice, and concern for the next world, not this one. Then came major developments of the 19th century, capitalism, industrialization, urbanization, the triumph of science, all of it leading to easy transportation, efficient mail delivery, the widespread publishing of books and magazines, new inventions making life comfortable and exciting, and the rise of entrepreneurs who understood that the way to make a profit was to produce something good and sell it to a mass market. For the first time, the giving of gifts became a major feature of Christmas. Early Christians denounced gift-giving as a Roman practice, and Puritans called it diabolical. But Americans were not to be deterred. Thanks to capitalism, there was enough wealth wealth to make gifts possible, a great productive apparatus to advertise them and make them available cheaply, and a country so content that men wanted to reach out to their friends and express their enjoyment of life. The whole country took with glee to giving gifts on an unprecedented scale. Santa Claus is thoroughly an American invention. There was a St. Nicholas long ago and a feeble holiday connected with him on December 5th, by the way. But in 1822, an American named Clement Clark Moore wrote a poem about a visit from St. Nick. It was Moore and a few other New Yorkers who invented St. Nick's physical appearance and personality, came up with the idea that Santa traveled on Christmas Eve in a sleigh pulled by reindeer, comes down the chimney, stuffs toys in the kids' stockings, then goes back to the North Pole. Of course, the Puritans denounced Santa as the Antichrist because he pushed Jesus to the background. Furthermore, Santa implicitly rejected the whole Christmas ethics. He did not denounce the rich and demand that they give everything to the poor. On the contrary, he gave, he gave gifts to rich and poor children alike. Nor is Santa a champion of Christian mercy or unconditional love. On the contrary, he is for justice. Santa gives only to good children, not to the bad ones. <laughs> Yeah, there was a time when you had a piece of coal or something if you were bad, wasn't it? You get, yes, you get a lump of coal in your stocking. Like that, yeah. Yeah. All the best customs of Christmas, from carols to trees to spectacular decorations, have at their root in pagan ideas and practices. These customs were greatly amplified by American culture as the product of reason, science, business, worldliness, and egoism, i.e., the pursuit of happiness. America's tragedy is that its intellectual leaders have typically tried to replace happiness with guilt by insisting that the spiritual meaning of Christmas is religion and self-sacrifice for Tiny Tim were his equivalent. But the spiritual must start with recognizing reality. Life requires reason, selfishness, capitalism. This is what Christmas should celebrate. And really, underneath all the pretense, this is what it does celebrate. It is time to take the Christ out of Christmas and turn the holiday into a guiltless, egoist, pro-reason, this-worldly commercial celebration. That's from Leonard Peikoff in <laughs> Capitalism Magazine. So put Santa Claus back into Christmas and take Christ out. Take the religion out, eh? I love, <laughs> I love the absolute honesty yeah. of this particular article because it is exactly how everybody out there listening practices Christmas. I shouldn't say everybody. There are the Puritans still out there who think that the real meaning of Christmas is altruistic. But everybody else out there sees it as a celebration of life, of gift-giving, of the freedom culture. Exactly, and you know that's kind of what we're looking for, isn't it? Almost to replace the culture that Bill Gardner was talking about. We need a freedom culture. We do indeed. People need to be able to think in terms of freedom, uh, just 
it's just to have that mindset. Uh, you know, it's funny. It always comes up every year, the issue at Christmas. Is it better to give than to receive? <laughs> <laughs> when, you know, that to me is a moral mind game, eh? Because mm-hmm. giving and receiving are part of the same act. Yes. How can one be better than the other? It might, in fact, if you talk to most people, they'll tell you it feels better to give than to receive. And it's actually harder to receive, especially to receive graciously when you get something that maybe you didn't really want or need. I, or, I, or, you know, but it's such a, you get into all these issues over the Christmas Why are holiday. we even trying to quantify the act of giving or receiving? I mean, well, we don't, but that's what you hear in society. Mm-hmm. It's always that moral game. There's always some moral evaluation going on. There's a guilt trip going on Very, in a lot of cases. Yes. I mean, just accept a gift that is given, and if you enjoy giving gifts, then give them. I mean, that's it. Simple as that. No ulterior motive, no guilt trip, nothing should be associated <laughs> with. You know, I'm, I'm an atheist, and I celebrate Christmas from the tree as, you know, I don't particularly like doing things around Christmas. I think it's really a rather, rather of a pain. But uh, the gift-giving, the tree, the turkey, I usually cook a turkey and stuff like that. Um, my wife usually does most of the decorating. And, uh, but, um, yeah, in our household, Christmas is Christmas. It's a pagan tradition. It is not a Christ, Christian tradition. As a matter of fact, I think the only thing left of Christ in Christmas is the name. Almost. Almost, yeah. Um, of course, there's the manger and all those things that are the associated with scene. the holiday. holiday yeah, yes. but we don't have a nativity scene, and yet we still celebrate Christmas. And I, I think that that clip you had there from Lewis Black, he doesn't celebrate Christmas because he's Jewish. I think he's really missing out. Why don't you <laughs> celebrate Christmas? They should, sure you can. Atheists celebrate Christmas. Well, we'll hear more about that in this next break as we go to the next break, and we'll end up the show on a, another unpredictable journey on the right for another year on Just Right, right after this. My favorite time of year is between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I love that time. I don't know why we have the Macy's Day Parade here in New York on Thanksgiving. New York is filled with people from other countries who have no idea what we're celebrating. What does some Japanese tourist think when he sees a big Barney floating down 6th Avenue? It's got to be unsettling for the poor guy. Godzilla! That's my favorite holiday. It's ironic, because I'm a Jew. (laughs) Jews like Christmas. We come out Christmas Day. That's one of our favorite days. We go out. You Christians don't know about it. You're inside unwrapping gifts. We own this city on Christmas. (laughs) We come out like the munchkins in The Wizard of Oz when the witch kicks. We're hiding behind trees. Are the Christians gone? They're gone. Come on. Well, so much for your theory, eh, Robert? Well, at least this, this one Jew who celebrates Christmas, there great. Hog way to celebrate it, though. Hog way, yes. <laughs> Did you ever see the, the, the uh, you know, in the movie uh, A Christmas Story, I think it is, how they I ended up having uh, <laughs> their Christmas in a in an Oriental restaurant? Chinese restaurant, Chinese yeah. restaurant because the dogs <laughs> ate, the, ate the turkey. That it, is one of my favorite Christmas it's stories. It's a wonderful yeah. movie. But I must begin uh, this section of the show by reminding one and all... This is, the, this is our final live broadcast of Just Right for the Year 2010. Can you believe it, Robert? So sad. You've been here for your first full year. Mm-hmm. How'd you enjoy it? Was it I fun? I enjoyed it very much and looking forward what to a ride, more eh? years. Yes. Remember on our very first broadcast of the year, we had to cut the show short 
because we had that false fire alarm. Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) And we had to run out and continue the show the following week. But Robert and I will return with an entirely new broadcast of Just Right on January 6th, the first Thursday in 2011. So since this is our last opportunity this year to do so, I'd like to thank all of those who have helped make the show possible over the past year, starting with station manager Grant Steen, program director Michael Brown, spoken word director Ashley Bushfield, who's in the control room right now, also on-air co- operator Kathy and to other individuals who fill those positions throughout the year, including Bronwyn Loden and Tafsir Diallo. Remember him? Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, what a what a list of guests we had this year. Do you remember them all? Oh, no. No, it's phenomenal, but, though. Well, listen to this. Mark Emery, Prince of Pot, Lawrence Solomon, Energy Probe, and National Post editorial writer. Ann Coulter, lawyer, journalist, New York Times best-selling author and political activist. Mary Lou Ambrosio of the International Free Press Society, Professor Christopher Essex, co-author of Taken by Storm, Paul Lambert, former teacher, author, now our Euro correspondent from Sweden, mm-hmm. Paul McKeever, lawyer and videographer, John Thompson of the McKenzie Institute, Dick Field, writer, political activist, Mark and Connie Fournier of the Free Dominion, Rory Leishman, journalist, author and columnist, Lars Vilks, artist and free speech activist, Lars Hedegaard, president of the Free Press Society, Wayne Forbes, Grand Band businessman, Gary McHale, Canadian Advocates for Charter Equality, Mark Vandermoss, Caledonia Victims Projects, and just moments ago, William Gardner, author of The Trouble with Canada. What an impressive list. It is an impressive list, I think. And uh, certainly to each of these guests, I'd like to extend our appreciation for appearing on the show. Each one has become part of what this show is all about, as we've become a unique, I guess, media news source for the voices of what would generally be considered on the right. Our reputation seems to be getting out there, Robert, and uh, helps give us gives gives our name, the name of the show, a little bit of a different, you know, an, an extra dimension, I guess you'd say, when we say we're just right, <laughs> yes. because we do offer voices on the right who may not agree with everything that we say. No, but as we do like to say, today's real political debate is all on the right, since the left has all but abdicated the debate entirely. And we have some new things coming up in the new year. Do you want to give us a hint of? Some of the things we're thinking about doing. Well, actually, we've just accomplished one thing that is uh, pretty new. And for our uh, fans out there, we have a Just Right fan page on Facebook. We just put up the uh, link to it on our website. And you can go to that at uh, justrightmedia.org. And you'll see a way to uh, connect to our fan page, which we hope that you will like, in quotes. And uh, on that page, you'll see pictures of uh, most of our guests. We're trying to get pictures of all of them. I think I've put up about 24 wow. right at the moment, and it's quite an impressive collage of, of people that have been on the show. On that page as well, you can um, look at some of the comments that we'll be putting up on our sh- about our shows, which we archive on our website. So over the next few weeks, um, how many weeks are we going to miss the show, Bob? Next three, is it? Uh, no, just two. Just two we'll weeks. So over the next two weeks, if you have to get your fill of Just Right, you can go to our website again at w www.justrightmedia.org and download um, we have 181 shows under our belt most with uh, Bob at the helm but quite a few with me as well so um, if you need your fill of Just Right that's the place to go and we'll be adding a few new things over the holidays as well Um, you know one of the things that we should talk about is our listeners Hmm. We've really never had a view of who's listening or how many people are listening to the show. Oh, are you going to talk about our stats? uh, Just what we know about them. Mm -hmm. Because I have to say, um, you know, for all our 
for the first time on our site, we had uh, we finally started looking at our statistics to see how many people are listening and tuning into the show, at least on our website. And that's very important because it's a very incomplete and inconsistent uh, set of stats for this year because we just started in April. Well, not on, not and for only some that. of them, we just started in October. Oh, that's so. true, yeah. But so. not only that, remember, we are a live uh, radio broadcast, so there's uh, we reach a market of almost, uh, I think, what, half a million people out there? Potentially, live. yes. Mm-hmm. But um, so what these stats represent is about three months of, of statistics for our pre-2010 broadcasts and about eight months of stats for our 2010 broadcasts because, you know, the screw-ups we did with our website there earlier process. in the year. It's a learning process. And um, I have had some December stats too, which represent only 14 days, less than half the month to date. But it's just amazing what we're seeing. And as Robert said, the total number of broadcasts is 181 after today's show. Although there was one show we were unable to archive, show number 176 a few weeks ago. So if anyone has a copy of that broadcast, you know, that would make a great Christmas present. (laughs) (laughs) I had to get that one in there. I'm still looking. I hate having that empty one there. Oh, well. But um, finally, I guess the most important factor to figure in is the following. And, and, And here are the sources of just right broadcast for which we do not have any statistics available to us. Number one, the the listeners who are listening live on air right now, for example, Mm -hmm. on the broadcast. Number two, the listeners who are listening live on the streamed audio signal, which is going on right now. Number three, the number of listeners who download the show from CHRW's own archive at chrwradio.com. Number four, the number of listeners who listen to the rebroadcast of the previous week's show on CHRW on the following Thursday between 6 and 7 a.m. By the way, we've never mentioned that before, have we? Hmm. That uh, this week's show is rebroadcast the following week at 6 a.m. That's right. And as well, the number of listeners to that live stream as well we can't count. And of course, those who listen to any illegal copying or trading, otherwise distributing these copies, we can't count them either. Okay, so that's all the stuff we can't count. We can't we have count, stats right. for what we do can count. That's right. <laughs> So all I have in the way of something objective as to the number of our listeners is our only very new and recent site stats that represent only listeners who've gone to the show from our permanent archive at www.justrightmedia.org. So it's not a fair or equitable comparison, to say the least. Uh, A year from now, we'll be able to make some really fair comparisons. But we are getting our first glimpse of what's happening online, and it's quite encouraging. Tell us. So subject to all the conditions I've outlined above, the total number of archived Just Right shows downloaded to the end of November, ready for this, was 66,292 shows. That is absolutely amazing. And most alarming, if that's the word, have been our stats for the first two weeks of December, which have already exceeded any previous month's stats for the whole month. And uh, one thing I've noticed, the pattern is not abating. The increase is almost on a 45-degree angle in terms of listeners to the show. In the first two weeks of December, an additional 19,557 shows were downloaded. And bringing our total now, very skewed total, because we're getting three months of some shows and eight of others, but to 85,819. That's that's just amazing, Robert. And... um, What's interesting to me, too, is that my own friends and acquaintances who I know listen to the show aren't part of these stats because they listen live or they listen to CHRW or get their copy from CHRW. So um, 
One of the things I do know is no single broadcast on the site was downloaded less than 300 times in the given period, which is amazing. But uh, you might be interested in knowing what some of the some of the top hits are, at least for the two first two weeks of uh, December, the, the top mm. shows. And boy, does it bounce all over the place. We're starting to see things like um, here's one I cannot explain. First weekend of uh, of this month. 2,259 people decided that our 41st broadcast, which is titled Love, Hate, and Light Bulbs, <laughs> uh, was downloaded. It's just amazing. Uh, only 286 uh, people downloaded it for the first three months, and all of a sudden on one weekend it just went a little bit viral. Somebody and probably mentioned it to somebody who mentioned it to somebody, etc. It's amazing how that happens. Yeah. Our second show was show number 27 on money, 485 downloads already. And then we go to number three, Avatar and Haiti, number four, show. Now, this is just in the last two weeks. This changes dramatically. If I were to do this again next week or the week after, it would be a totally different mm -hmm. si situation. But uh, the show we did on Mar Tommy Douglas is number four right now. Um, our Actually, our show we talked about, the first show of the year on efficiency, waste, and government, is number five. Faith and Consensus with Paul McKeever, who was on, is our number six show. Number seven is, and this is in the top ten all the time, Robert. I think if we want to do a popular show, we'll just do this one subject. UFOs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're kidding. I'm not kidding. Really. I still have to post that picture of the UFO I that I saw. I wish you did. I, I was going to bring that right, up. I'll I didn't want to embarrass you. I'll do, the I'll picture you sent me was so intriguing. I'm surprised you haven't posted it I will it post yet. that today, okay? So okay. if anybody wants to go to the site and see the UFO that I saw last year, it'll be there. And uh, number eight was on the show we did on the British monarchy. Uh, number nine, science and religion. Number ten... Um, UFOs again, interesting. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but going down a little bit, out of the 180 shows, we noticed that show number 16, which is amazing, was last week's show, oh. with uh, Vandermas and McHale and, and the group there, and that's amazing for a, a show within a week to rise that quickly. And uh, that was just one ahead of our show with Ann Coulter. So now, <laughs> those imagine? are all the shows, but yeah. what I'd like, to make 10, an I'd like to make an appeal to our listeners sure. out there is that we want to hear your feedback. We are really interested in what you have to say, good or ill. Um, we often, and we have in the past, taken some of your letters and read them on the air. And uh, if they're good, well, we like that. If they're bad or we disagree with them, we'll take it apart. <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, it's all in fun, I'm sure. Uh, so if you want to just drop us a line uh, at feedback at justrightmedia.org, the email is on our website. Uh, do that, please. We'd love to hear from you, especially if um, you're uh, from far away. I know that we have listeners um, in Europe, Sweden, Italy, all over the world, America, and uh, all over Canada, of course. So, yeah, let's drop us a line. Let us know what you think. And this is a great time to do it is over the Christmas holidays. Keep an eye on our website, www.justrightmedia.org, because there's going to be a lot of changes and updates. By the way, we're even going to have uh, some video samplers of the show mm -hmm. available. We I tried one there last year, and it, it's a pretty labor-intensive to put a video up on YouTube. And it that, is. So, but I'm going to make an effort to try to get some more up there. Well, Especially we, with our special guests, and we we tried a we tried a, a video sampler on a live audience about a month ago, and it just went over huge. Oh, so I think we better uh, start putting those online. Well, Robert, that's it for this year. I, well, am I going to see you again before the next show, <laughs> <laughs> or is this it for us for the for the Christmas season? <laughs> well, no doubt we'll uh, talk on the phone. I'm sure. 
Well, to, to you and to everyone else listening, uh, do have a very safe and ha- happy holiday season. And make sure you're all there to join us again when we return in the new year. So it's time for us to go for this year. And you know what to do. Be right, act right, do right, stay right, and be right back here in the new year. We'll see you then. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be... Jews don't believe in Santa, you know. When I was a little kid, my parents told me straight out, ain't no such thing as Santa Claus. You see a fat man in a red suit come down that chimney, you blow his damn head off. (laughs) The gun's next to the cookies.